0: But I think what's different about Bitcoin, in my opinion, is you have two different adoption curves that are playing out. You have the adoption of Bitcoin the asset and the adoption of Bitcoin the network. So if you think about the people who are using Bitcoin for remittances in El Salvador or Tonga or Ukraine, um, these people are not necessarily, you know, visionaries pushing a technology forward because they want, you know, a revolution. They're using it because it's ten times better in terms of speed, in terms of cost and it just works. I truly believe like five to 10 years from now, we're gonna look back at everything that's been created with this technology and be shocked at all the changes that come from it. I I mean, I love PlevNet. I think what they're doing um, has had an immense impact on the Lightning Network overall. Their understanding of liquidity on Lightning and their understanding of, you know, the different elements of running a routing node is second to none. One of my favorite parts of the design of Taro is um, all of the sort of taro asset stuff happens at the edges of the network. I think a 10 X within three years is a total possibility. And I might be being, you know, a little bit conservative. Michael Levine is a
1: product manager at lightning labs, a company devoted to building the tools to bring Bitcoin to billions. In our conversation, Michael and I discussed the dual adoption curves of Bitcoin. We explored the entire product suite of lightning labs, And we even discussed Tarot and the future of the Lightning Network. I've also added Michael to today's show splits. So if you learned something from today's conversation, the best way you can show your support is by sending in sats, comments, and questions over the Lightning Network. Michael and I will each receive 50% of the sats that you send in, and we will both be able to read your comments and questions. Just a special shout out, thank you to everyone who has been sending in sats the last few weeks. It's really cool to be able to share these sats 50 50 with all the guests that come on the show so thank you again to all the listeners sending in sats comments and questions quick shout out before we get into the episode today's show is sponsored by voltage voltage is the industry standard and next generation provider of lightning network infrastructure today's show is also sponsored by zebedee that's z e b e d e e and zebedee is your portal into the world of bitcoin gaming we'll have more from voltage and zebedee later in the show. Michael, thank you for joining me today. We've got lots to cover. I want to get into everything you're doing at Lightning Labs. Uh, You've written some interesting articles on the adoption of Bitcoin. Lots of questions, but before we get into any of that, why don't we start off with your background in Bitcoin and the moment you first decided that the Lightning Network was worth spending your
0: time on. Yeah, great question. I think um, you know a lot of people have sort of this aha moment. Uh, I don't know if I have that necessarily, um, but I have sort of a longer arch of a story, which is, you know, I, I went to school at a small school in New Orleans called Newman, famous for you know the Manning Brothers, OBJ, but also a school that Michael Lewis went to. Um, and so when I was you know 11, 12, I actually started reading a lot of Michael Lewis's books, Liars, Poker, Fast, a couple of different like finance books. And I was fascinated by it, even at the age of, of 12. And so I thought, OK, you know, this finance stuff is interesting to me. Um, I'm interested in learning more about it, maybe building a career around it. And so ended up at, at Wharton Undergraduate Business School and was taking classes um, on, on finance and, and sort of learning a little bit, but not really enjoying it, not really super passionate about it. And so. Um, when I like took a look at and went back to think about why was I interested in those Michael Lewis's book at such a young age, and I was rereading those books and trying to figure it out. um, I figured out that I wasn't actually interested in sort of the traditional, um, you know, financial layers, the traditional like banks and different things like that. But what I was interested in with his books was, you know, the the monetary system that allowed for all of this crazy stuff to occur, where people without expertise without, um, you know, uh, a lot of experience were able to make these incredible sums of money doing sometimes really weird and shady stuff. And so, from that point, what I understood was that I was super interested in sort of this foundational layer of money. You know, what is money? Um, who decides what is money? Who decides what can be used as money? And so, from that point, you know, I started to dabble in Bitcoin. I had a couple side hustles in college, was using it, um, you know, there and just was falling down the rabbit hole. I won't pretend that I grokked it initially. Um, but definitely was learning more and more about it. And then you know, around uh, 2017, 2018, when, when Lightning Labs started and when um, you know, the Lightning Network became this idea, I was super interested in that because for me, I've always been interested in, in sort of platform businesses, the idea of helping you know, someone accomplish their goal to help you accomplish your goal, and so the idea of a of a like business that was helping developers build on Lightning, helping them reach their end users, their dream, um, and be able to help them do that was was fascinating for me. And and the layer on top of that, um, the Lightning being able to uh, create and build Bitcoin into this medium of exchange layer was was fascinating for me, just because of you know the adoption of Bitcoin and and um, the direction that it was going in.
1: Right. So now the team at Lightning Labs has been, was one of the first contributors to the Lightning the Lightning Network protocol. And um, you know, now today is is one of the most um, well-known teams in the space. So in a way, you guys are kind of like, you've been at the center of, of Lightning adoption for so long. Um, and I, I know you wrote a piece a little while ago about um, Bitcoin adoption more broadly and you you split it up into two different, uh, you characterize Bitcoin as an asset and as a network. Can you talk to me a bit about the adoption that you're seeing so far in Bitcoin as an asset versus Bitcoin as a network and what those two, what the differences between those two are?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm glad you asked about this because this is like a common misconception I see when I talk to people about Bitcoin or or people who are just coming into the space um, don't really grasp, right? I think you have this idea of an adoption curve for any technology right um and you know people grasp that and understand that but i think what's different about bitcoin in my opinion is you have two different adoption curves that are playing out you have the adoption of bitcoin the asset and the adoption of bitcoin the network so starting with bitcoin the asset i think this refers to kind of the store of value components of bitcoin right it's an investment in the underlying thesis that you know bitcoin will become a global store of value similar to gold there's a variety of factors that you know uh make that an extraordinary potential global store of value like its durability scarcity you know verifiability Um, some would argue it hasn't had the history yet um, to to reach that point. But I think that, you know, when people think about Bitcoin the asset, it's an investment in the belief that it will ultimately become a global store of value. And I think we've seen a lot of reports recently about, uh, you know, Bitcoin ownership and usage. And, and I think NIDIG recently released a report where they said, you know, over 46 million Americans own Bitcoin today, and that's more than 22% of adults over uh, 18 in the U.S. So, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of adoption of of Bitcoin, the asset, and I think it's a little bit further along than the adoption of of Bitcoin, the network. And I think Bitcoin, the network refers more to the medium of exchange component of Bitcoin, right? So I, I think of Lightning Network, you know, as part of this, but it's the part that enables an Internet native money or currency um, and the factors that make it an incredible potential, like medium of exchange or currency, are um, slightly different from the factors that make it a compelling store of value. I think they play off of each other to a certain extent, um, but Bitcoin the network enables this global, permissionless, programmable money for anyone connected to the internet to use. Um, and so I think it relies partially on the adoption of, of Bitcoin the asset, but the two technologies and adoption curves are slightly different. And I think when we're looking at the adoption of Bitcoin the network, um, you know, metrics around this can be difficult, because it's hard to tell why people own what, but um, some of what Arcane uh, released recently in their uh, research report on lightning was super interesting, which showed payment volume up 410% year over year, the number of users with access to lightning has skyrocketed to like 80 million users, I think, um, who have access to lightning now. So we're I think we're seeing adoption of both of these things. It's just at slightly different stages,
1: right? Why do you think the stages are different right now? Is it is it just because Bitcoin has had a longer uh, operating history as an asset than the Lightning Network has been around, or is it because the the value of you know having a store of value is a more important need today in a world of you know fiat inflation versus than maybe you know you know being able to uh, save save money on processing a payment. Is it is it something to do with the use case or is it just because? The network has been around for only you know four four years or so on lightning versus like 13 years with Bitcoin
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question I, I think that there you know, there is the Bitcoin network layer that's been around uh, for since Bitcoin the asset right and lightning network is you know a layer on top of that but I think you know, one theory that has always drawn me and has made sense to me is what VJ um, put forward in the bullish case for Bitcoin, which is just this sort of historical view of how money gets adopted. Right? If you look at gold, it serves first as sort of this collectible, then eventually, you know, moves into the store of value, then medium of exchange, then unit of account. And I think what's interesting about that idea is, you know, for gold when it was going through this hundreds of years ago. Um, you know, the available communication network and, and sort of, um, available ability to spread info was extraordinarily limited, right. So when gold went through this, it was going through it in these homogenous groups of, of people, right. So it was like, you know, you can imagine a family or a tribe or whatever, that adopted gold first as a collectible, and then slowly but surely started to realize, okay, this could be a store of value, this could be, um, you know, a medium of exchange, right. Um, but the transition to those phases was limited by the spread of information and just the like homo- homogeneous nature of these like groups, right? So they were um, using it for the same thing. Whereas with Bitcoin, what's happening is, you know, the store of value, the network is all being introduced at the same time. And I think with the, you know, available information networks, communication networks that we have now with the Internet, this stuff is spreading Way faster than gold ever did, and so I think ultimately what you're going to end up seeing is you'll have different audiences that use it for different purposes, right? So maybe in the Western developed markets, you have uh, people who are leaning into Bitcoin the asset as you know inflation protection or um, you know something that's censorship resistant or whatever it may be, but in emerging markets or the global south. You may have people who are actually using Bitcoin more because of the uh, network component of it, because, you know, fiat rails or or banking rails didn't serve their needs. Um, And so they're kind of hopping those in the same way that maybe they hop the PC straight to mobile and they're using the Bitcoin network to actually deliver the needs that they have around, you know, payments and different things like that. Um, So I think, you know, that's the interesting component of this uh, movement from store of value to medium of exchange to unit of account um, is the, the fact that um, this information can spread so quickly and different audiences can use it for different purposes.
1: Right. So now if we if we think of the, the Bitcoin, the asset as the store of value, and if we think of Bitcoin, the network as a medium exchange, how do we, what's the, what's the unit of account? How do we think about that? How, do, how does that uh, come into like reality for Bitcoin? I guess it's a unit of account in uh, two countries. Um, around the world <laughs> yeah. right now, but both those were kind of like top-down measures put in place by put in place by governments. Is there um, have you thought at all about how to how to get Bitcoin to go from medium of exchange to then unit of account on a global scale?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this relates really back to again, like different audiences are going to have slightly different curves and slightly different flows from store value to medium of exchange. Um, they may start at one and move to the other, but ultimately, you know, for unit of account, I think you know, you see Bitcoiners who do have it as a, you know, account, I think of Bitcoin as my unit of account, right? Like when I'm thinking about, you know, how much money I have, I do not think about my uh, you know, fiat bank account. Otherwise, I would get depressed. I think about my sort of a uh, Bitcoin stack. And so I think, you know, over time, as you have more adoption of, of Bitcoin, and as you have more, you know, Bitcoiners, even, you know, governments leaning in and, and you know, establishing Bitcoin as either a unit of account or legal tender or whatever it is, you're going to have more and more people who understand the incredible properties of Bitcoin as hard money, and they start to think of it as their unit of account. So I think it will take time, it will take education, it will take all of these different things, but ultimately it's a natural transition as you view it as a store of value, as you view it as a medium of exchange, eventually you get to that point where you view it as a unit of account how do you think
1: most people view it today? Like if you were to walk down the street and ask someone about Bitcoin, what do you think their, um, their interpretation of it would be today? And what do you think is going to be the, what's, what's the catalyst that's going to get them to recognize
0: all that Bitcoin can be? That's a great question. I think, I, I know I talk a, bit, a little bit about this in the piece. My hypothesis is that most people And again, it depends on where you are, whether you're in, you know, Western uh, markets or emerging markets or whatever. But I think if you ask, you know, someone on the street in the U.S., you know, what is Bitcoin, why would you own Bitcoin? They'll talk a lot about the properties of of Bitcoin, the asset potentially, um, and why, you know, it could serve as an inflation hedge, why it could be a digital gold, all of those different things. Um, So I think that's the way people are thinking about it now. Um, but with things like El Salvador, um, things like, you know, the partnerships that Strike have announced um, and all of the different, you know, medium of exchange use cases that are springing up, my hope is that, you know, over time that narrative starts to change and people start to view it um, a little bit more as a medium of exchange and understand the benefits um, associated with that. Right. And
1: and you you wrote a second piece, actually, after this first article, you wrote a second piece about... Uh, crossing the chasm, and basically about, about how Bitcoin gets across to the, you know, from the, the innovators and the, the early majority uh, or, or the early adopters to the, the majority. Um, what, what's your interpretation of like lightning apps today? Have any of them crossed the chasm? Have any of them got mainstream attention today?
0: Really good question. I want to take a step back and just like talk a little bit about what that chasm is. Um, So you have this idea of the like the diffusion of innovation theory, where basically, um, technologies are adopted by um, five groups, you have the innovators, the early adopters, the early majority, the late majority and the laggards. And that's how you know, all technology has been adopted smartphone, you know, printers, whatever it is, right. And so what Jeffrey Moore introduced with his book crossing the chasm in, in the mid 90s is this idea that Between the early adopters and the early majority exists a chasm um, where if a product can't cross it, it can kind of wither away in the doldrums of, of a niche market and never really reach full mainstream adoption. And so the chasm exists because there are these major psychological and social differences between early adopters and the early majority. Early adopters are visionaries. Um, who are basically, you know, searching for revolutionary change. Um, They see a problem with the status quo, and they want to adopt technologies to fix that. Whereas the early majority are just pragmatists, they're looking for use cases that meet their day to day needs. Um, They're looking for things that help them solve problems that they encounter, and they just need it to work, right, they just need it to work for whatever use case they have, they want incremental, reliable solutions. And so Back to the question of, you know, have any Lightning apps or use cases cross the chasm? When I think about that, I think about, you know, what's the early majority user? um, Who are the pragmatists that are using Lightning right now? And I think, in my mind, remittances is either there or very close. If you think about the people who are using Bitcoin for remittances in El Salvador or Tonga or Ukraine, um, these people are not necessarily, you know, visionaries pushing a technology forward because they want, you know, a revolution, they're using it because it's 10 times better in terms of speed, in terms of cost, and it just works. Um, and so I think remittances is the one that either has crossed the chasm, or is is close. And I think there are a bunch of other use cases that I'm, you know, excited about that have the ability to do so. And we'll just have to kind of wait and see and see what experiences are built out and, um, you know, how, how adoption occurs.
1: What else are you most excited about? What other? What are the other interesting kind of use cases you're seeing that maybe aren't quite at the point of crossing the chasm, but you think that over the next, you know, three, five, 10 years are, are going to be really powerful?
0: Uh, great question. I, I, I'm really excited about, um, you know, what people like you are doing, right? Like, I think what you're doing with your podcast and the value for value system that you're building around, you know, streaming sats and different things like that has immense potential. I, I you know, maybe I'm, an idealist or, or whatever but i think that's the way internet businesses should work and it's clearly something that you know when they were designing the internet protocol um, they were thinking about because you have this http 402 payment required sort of uh, response status code which basically is reserved for future use um, and this was a status code that was created to enable digital cash or micro payment systems um, which would basically indicate that the requested content um, is not available until like the client makes a payment. So it allows for the ability to do, you know, micro payments and value for value um, on on the internet for articles, videos, whatever it may be. And I think that that model just makes more sense. Like if if you think about it, if something is free, you're probably the product to a certain extent. And so with an ad based model, uh, products are incentivized to get worse over time. Like you look at YouTube or Google today, versus five years ago, the number of ad placements and video ads is totally ridiculous. Um, and it's because you need to generate more revenue, you need to show growth, all that different stuff. What value for now, value enables, if it's done correctly and people build it right, which it seems like is happening with, you know, fountain or, or other different tools, People can, you know, stream stats, but they can also give you a boost at a specific time so you know, okay, that was valuable. I can do more of that. And so I think value for value as a business model and the use cases around that are super exciting, Um, and I I think it's the way that, you know, internet businesses should work. I'm excited about the potential there um, for, you know, other other use cases to cross the chasm.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really cool idea that, yeah, you know, there's... Uh, there's nothing hidden going on. It's it's a direct payment from a listener or a consumer to a producer, and you can see. And, and then you know you can split payments. Like we're going to do a split here on this show, and you're going to get a split of all the of all the sats that people send in, and everyone will be able to see that any sats. If one sat goes through, you know we're both going to get 50%. If 100 sats, thousand sats, whatever it is, everyone can see the exact split um so it kind of like it it makes it obvious what the incentives are and it makes it clear um that this is how the business operates and that you know money is required for for businesses and and know,
0: i'm sure it's, it's fun, fun for you like you i yeah. mean when you get like a stream sat notification i'm sure that has you know a little hit of endorphin which is like really interesting and cool to think about you're getting those sat streamed from around the world you know you don't know when people are accessing it where they're accessing it but um, they're you know, paying you for the value that you're providing, which is incredible. Exactly.
1: And that's given me a different perspective on the importance of earning Bitcoin versus buying it. Because I think that that might be a separating factor that, that separates Bitcoin from other crypto assets, is that basically every other crypto asset, you, you acquire it or you participate in that network by buying on an exchange. And that's that. And, and you, you buy it with whatever money you have. And if you don't have any money, well, too bad, you're you're out of luck. And so it's kind of like you're, in a sense, it's like replicating the wealth distribution of fiat money uh, because only the people with money get to participate. Right. But when it's earning Bitcoin, like I think this is gonna be a really powerful idea because it, it, it opens up access to people who don't necessarily have money but have can contribute value, can contribute their time and their effort in, in a, a bunch of other tasks. I imagine we're just scraping the surface of what those tasks could look like. But it gives people an outlet to participate without having to have money, if that makes sense. So, like, totally. I, I just, there's a lot to... What's your perspective on like the importance of earning? I I think there's a lot there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's like two things I think about there. One that you just talked about, which I think is incredibly important, which is this idea of, you know, even if people don't have the money to buy Bitcoin or even if they do, you know, have some money to buy Bitcoin, there is, you know, uh, a huge overhead of educating them about why they may want to do so, right? Um, and, and getting, you know, that message out there, convincing them to convert, you know, their hard-earned whatever currency into uh, Bitcoin, there's, there's education that has to go into that. Whereas if you think about the possibility of earning Bitcoin, specifically around earning in ways that weren't possible for before, um, then I think things get really exciting. I think you talked about this a little bit with Lynn Alden, um, in regard to the sort of Central African Republic and adopting of legal tender, um, you know they have issues with regard to you know internet penetration and different things like that. But if that were to um, you know increase and you were able to give people their opportunities to earn Bitcoin through something like Stackwork, where they can you know complete tasks um, where that opportunity did not exist before and you're paying them in Bitcoin, I think that does even more, um, potentially to help people understand that Bitcoin is this money that can help them. It's a better money because they can earn and, and you know, make money, make Bitcoin um, in opportunities and ways that they, they didn't have before. Right. So I think that's, you know, one component of it. And then the other one is just, you know, I think circular economies are, are incredibly important. And I especially love things like Podcasting 2.0, Stacker News, Vita Live. These sort of enable like Bitcoin earning side hustles, which is awesome. Um, and I think there's a psychological component of like, if you earn Bitcoin, maybe you're more willing to uh, give that Bitcoin back, spend it back to someone who is, is trying to earn Bitcoin. Um, you don't have to do any like fiat conversion or think about it, but it's kind of like, when I think about what I will do with with the Fountain Sats that I receive from the split, I'm probably going to listen to podcasts on Fountain and and you know stream Sats to to uh, creators. And so that circular economy idea, I think, is also an important component of of earning Bitcoin.
1: For sure. Now, when you think about a world that is, um, let's call it uh, instead of a hyper Bitcoinized world, a hyper Lightningized world, where money is just flowing between people and apps all over the world. Uh, in this like permissionless streams of payments, um, what does that world look like to you? Like, what do you think some of the big changes are gonna be in a world where anyone can send anyone payments for anything at any moment?
0: Oh man, that's a big question. Um, I uh, I will go back to like something Lynn Alden said on your podcast again recently where she talked about, you know, the iPhone. And we couldn't have possibly predicted that the iPhone would like disrupt the taxi industry. You know, it's just such a large jump for our minds to make about a foundational technology and what it can accomplish. And I think lightning plus Bitcoin is the same way or even larger scale, potentially, you know, you've got at a foundational level, this money that you can truly own for the first time ever. And then layered on top of that, you have the lightning network, which makes it highly programmable, you know, cheap to move global, peer to peer. Um, and I truly believe like five to 10 years from now, we're going to look back at everything that's been created with this technology and be shocked at all the changes that come from it. Um, I really do think that there is, you know, an impending boom of different use cases on Lightning um, and, you know, different ways that uh, people can stream sats, people can earn sats um, and different things like that. So, you know, maybe a cop out answer, but I, the fact that I, uh, you know, working at Lightning Labs means that. I get to focus on sort of uh, making it easy for builders to build on top of Lightning, and you know, reach the end users that they want to reach. And so, I don't have to necessarily have an opinion about what builders or what use cases. I can focus in on you know, making it as easy as possible for those people to build to build use cases that are useful for their audiences, and then we can see where it goes from there, which I'm super excited about.
1: Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now. In, in the topic of crossing the chasm, what are some, what are some of the limitations today, or the restrictions and the constraints that are preventing us from getting to that future that you envision? What do you think is holding adoption back right now?
0: Yeah, really good question. I mean, for me, like just because of what I think about and what I work on on a day-to-day basis, um, I, I think a lot about kind of how do we make it easier and more understandable for builders to build on lightning and reach the end users that they want to reach with new use cases that provide utility to those end users, right? We want people who are using lightning to solve problems. And I think that, you know, one thing that we're going to have to continue to work on for years to come is making, you know, running a lightning node, making building a app or a business on lightning as easy as possible. Right. And so, um, You know, when I think about lightning, there's just all of this stuff associated with it that may not, um, you know, occur to a a normal developer who has built a a software business or a mobile business or something like that. And liquidity management sticks out to me in terms of, um, you know, having to teach people, um, you know, about liquidity management and and make that easier. Um, And so I think that, you know, one thing that um, will help people across the chasm that will help builders build more on lightning is making that liquidity management, node operations experience as smooth, as easy as possible, so that they can just focus on reaching those end users. They can focus on you know reaching the people they want to reach with the use cases they want to deliver. And they don't have to think as much about, is my node operational? Do I have liquidity in the right place at the right time? And all of those different components. Right.
1: Now I want to get into your work at Lightning Labs and I want to cover, I want to give people an understanding of what Lightning Labs is and Maybe the, the place we should start off at is, what is the difference between Lightning Labs and LND? Because I think there's a lot of confusion, uh, especially among people who are are not necessarily super familiar with Lightning and the Lightning Network, the difference between Lightning Labs, the company, and LND, the implementation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, LND is an open source project. Um, it's an open source Lightning implementation. It allows for people to you know, plug into the Lightning Network. Um, and Lightning Labs as a company, um, you know, maintains and coordinates contr- contributions and releases for l but also works on other products and services to help make building on Lightning easier. Um, so LND is, you know, one thing that we play a role in, but it's ultimately an open source project um, and something that, you know, there are external contributors to um, and the like, I think. Um, you know, as you look at the open source world over the past thirty years or whatever, there are many different models for how to build and maintain a truly open source project. And especially in the last ten years, it's kind of been a renaissance for open source, with you know um, different things that ha- that have come about, different business models around building on open source. And so I think you know um, we have other products and services that we uh, use um, and that we build, um, and those are all designed to help. Uh, you know onboard more builders into into lightning and LND is is one of those things it's an open source implementation of lightning
1: right okay so now when, when you're thinking about designing products you got you got a few different products out today um, you know loop and pool and you have uh, a tarot that is on the horizon um, how do you think about the compatibility of those products with other implementations because now I think we're at a stage where we've got Uh, I want to say there's four, maybe there's five uh, kind of lightning implementations that people people recognize. There may be more uh, smaller ones, but we have LND, we have um, uh, Core Lightning. uh, There's Async's team with Eclair. There's uh, LDK. Um, How do you think about the compatibility of the products that Lightning Labs builds with those other
0: implementations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a great question. I think there's. You know no reason that our liquidity products or other products that we put out there like lnc or lsats uh could not be compatible with other implementations but i think these things like don't necessarily have to be included in other implementations i think there's this you know base foundational layer spec layer for lightning implementations where we want to have that interoperability between the implementations um but on top of that there's you know uh other implementations may have other solutions to problems that our products are trying to solve. And that's kind of the beauty of a, of a free and, and open market. I don't think these things necessarily need to be included at the, the spec layer such that everyone is required to implement them because uh, different implementations may have different focuses or different uh, audiences that they're working on. And so, uh, you know, async, for example, has done a ton of work optimizing sort of the mobile experience, um, which is more like the app layer than the protocol layer necessarily. Um, And I think, you know, other implementations may have not have implemented some of the work there because async is the one that's running a mobile wallet they have you know the expertise and and the interest in in bringing that forward and so um you know i I think as lightning labs we're focused on you know building lnd for our current lnd users future lnd users and, and sort of making it as useful um as possible to to those users and we're focused on building products that you know make lightning easier for those builders that that you know make it so that developers can build on Lightning in an easy way, um, and really you know, deliver the use cases to the end users that they want to deliver.
1: Right, OK. So I want to understand this as well, because the, I'm not fully up to speed on all the technical details of how the different implementations work. Um, so this is an important one, I think, for me to, to understand, is if I am running a node on a non-LND implementation, and I have a certain feature that, that I can use on my on my node, um, and I want to be able to run that same feature on LND. Um, how do I do that? How do I communicate that to the? Do I? Am I working with the Lightning Labs team? Am I working with this like open source group of contributors? How do I get? How do we get to basically where anyone who has a feature on their Lightning node implementation can integrate it with other implementations if if you know both teams agree that this is an optimal outcome.
0: It's a great question, and I think it, it, you know, it has to do a little bit with like the the spec process and what's associated there. And I won't pretend to be, you know, an expert on that. But I think, um, you know, at the spec layer, what is determined is what is necessary for Lightning Node implementations to be interoperable, um, so that everything, you know, works. And I think. You know, that is considered sort of a base layer of, uh, you know, different things that need to happen in order for Lightning Nodes to be interoperable, defining invoices, um, you know, different components like that, right? And then there are things that can be built on top of that that may not be necessary for all of the different implementations uh, to pick up and actually, you know, utilize there may be stuff on the application layer, um, above the sort of spec layer, um, that it's not necessary for certain implementations um, to pick up and use. So like LNURL is an example of something that was built on the application layer that was kind of built outside of the spec process that a lot of different, you know, apps and services and and wallets are using, um, but isn't necessarily built into the spec process such that each lightning implementation has to implement it. And so I think that Um, When we think about the different features of different implementations and different things like that, we want to encourage building, we want to encourage growth, um, and we want there to be this layer where you can kind of build stuff that doesn't necessarily need to be, um, you know, a part of each and every implementation because it's kind of on the app layer, it allows for more experimentation, different things like that, whereas the spec process, the bold process is focused on, you know, what do we need to do in order for the Lightning Network to be interoperable for node implementations um, to work together? And that's sort of a, a thin layer of uh, requirements and of specs um, that all of the implementations have to follow.
1: Okay, I see. That makes a lot more sense. So there's going to be like a bolt uh, essential layer that everyone needs in order to communicate back and forth. And then you're saying you, you think people are going to be uh, experimenting more on the app layer above that where it doesn't depend on individual node implementations it's it's something that kind of lives outside of that spec
0: process yeah. and there's a process that um, recently got started called lips um, which allows for like app developers to put a you know a standard together Um, or like a a proposal together for a standard that lives on, you know, the app layer, um, outside of of the bold process, so to speak. So this, it encourages people to build and experiment and, you know, do different things on top of that spec implementation layer, without having to go through the full process of, um, you know, putting something through uh, the spec, because you want all implementations to use it because it should be part of sort of interoperability standards and, and that different stuff.
1: Okay. So, so when we think about something like uh, like a Lightning Labs pool product, is that is that on the app layer then? Because I think like right now that's that's only I believe only compatible with LND nodes. Is that correct?
0: Yep. Uh, so I mean that's that, something like, that
1: on the is that in the spec process or is that on the app layer?
0: Yeah, I mean I think that that's on the app layer. Um, it's something where um, you know. Other implementations could integrate with pool, um, but it's something where we don't necessarily believe that uh, we need to dictate um, the way that liquidity management happens at the protocol layer. Um, it's something where we think like experimentation and different use cases, different things happening, um, rapid innovation, rapid iteration around helping people do the liquidity management component of Lightning um, you know can live at that app layer, can live at that layer um, above the you know protocol specification. Okay,
1: um, so, so let's get into, let's just do a full uh, rundown of the products that Lightning Labs is working on right now. Uh, I wanna make sure I get everything. So we have, we have Loop, I believe that was one of the first products you guys launched. Uh, there's Pool, uh, Terminal, and uh, Tarot upcoming. Can you talk about how these products kind of fit into the overall vision of Lightning Labs? Like I'm trying to understand what what you guys are building towards when you design these different products?
0: It's a great question. I think um, part of the reason why I love working at Lightning Labs is because the vision and the mission is so clear and our products fit nicely into it. And I think the mission is to bring Bitcoin to billions of people, uh, leveraging the Lightning Network, right? And we want to do so by... uh, using the vision and execution of builders, developers, entrepreneurs, who can make these useful products on lightning, they can reach these audiences who need a problem solved, and they can use lightning to do so. So everything that we work on is um, kind of basically to either make lightning uh, easier to build on, or to make it possible for those builders to reach even more end users, right? So something like loop and pool, in my opinion, basically uh, makes it easier to build on Lightning. It provides these useful services and products to help builders manage their liquidity um, so that they can you know, have an operational node so that they can receive payments, um, source inbound, all of that different stuff. Whereas something like Taro, unlocks a whole new set of use cases that builders can leverage to reach even more end users with these useful products and services. And so um, everything that we're working on is with this um, mish- mission and vision in mind of you know reaching billions of people with Bitcoin. And we you know work on products that make it easier to build on Lightning or make it possible for you to reach more end users with Lightning.
1: And so when you think about each of these individual products, are there any network effects at play here? Like when where one product can then benefit the other and benefit the other and benefit the other, any like cross product, you know, synergies or, or ways that that these products can kind of work together?
0: Yeah. I mean, when I think about terminal, for instance, um, I think that there's, you know, a, a real benefit to having a easy to use UX for products like loop and pool. Right, and so I think um, you know building that UX layer, building it uh, such that it's really easy to get connected with your node um, to this web experience, it makes it easy to uh, sort of understand and manage liquidity on the Lightning Network through Loop and Pool is the type of thing where we see you know cross product synergies in terms of delivering that um, that experience to end users. Um, so that's you know one example of that. I think there are, are many more um, that we can go into.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's go into it. So. Um first up let's start with pool or sorry let's start with loop um who was loop built for like what was the target audience in mind when the product first came out
0: yeah absolutely so let's start you know what what loop is loop is a service that makes it easier to send and receive funds on lightning it basically serves as an on off ramp or bridge between the bitcoin lightning network and the bitcoin blockchain right and so as we saw um you know the network and the number of lightning applications grow um we heard and I wasn't here at the time loop was launched, but I know kind of the backstory. Um, We heard uh, from users that there was a lot of interest in a solution to help them manage liquidity and help them move funds between on chain and and off chain, right. And so lightning channels are like tubes of money or abacuses, right? You, you, uh, the more you send, uh, you know, the more you can receive and, and different things like that. And I think, as the money moves around, um, there are challenges associated with that. Liquidity needs to be in the right place at the right time in order for you to either receive or send payments, right? And so I think, you know, who Lightning is built for is these merchants, these merchants and these businesses that are building on top of Lightning. Let's take an example um, to kind of walk through it. So if I'm a merchant and I'm selling t-shirts on the Lightning Network, right, I open up some channels, but I only have outbound liquidity at that point. So I can't, Um, actually receive payments. So I can use loop to loop out uh, some of that outbound liquidity, which gives me inbound liquidity and moves funds to my on chain wallet. Um, And it creates that inbound liquidity for my business, so that I can then receive payments. Um, Let's say my business is doing really, really well, I'm receiving a lot of payments, I sell a bunch of t shirts, but then I run out of inbound liquidity, right? I have to, I can no longer receive payments via Lightning, uh, because I'm out of that inbound liquidity. And I may not even know about this if I'm not, you know, uh, looking at my node managing my node actively. Um, But to do to get back that inbound liquidity, one thing you can do is loop out. Um, Again, you move funds on chain, you replenish that inbound liquidity. And with those on chain funds, you can, you know, sell it to get fiat to cover, you know, cost of goods or other expenses associated with your business. While at the same time you add that inbound back in, you allow for people to, again, pay for stuff um, and buy stuff through your business.
1: Got it. So primarily this is targeting businesses. Uh, Do you think there's also, what's the market for uh, routing nodes to be using uh, something like Loop? Is that going to be a big component as well?
0: I think we do see, um, you know, routing nodes using loop to a certain extent. I think that, you know, one thing that they do is point uh, liquidity in the direction of loop in order to, um, you know, route towards it. Because loop is a, is a sink in the traditional sense of, you know, it's, it's pulling sats towards it. And so they can earn, uh, you know, fees against that. And then, you know, you will see routing node operators occasionally loop out or loop in um, to sort of move liquidity around within their channels. Um, as a routing node operator, you're really... Um, cognizant of the fact that liquidity needs to be in the right place at the right time in order for you to route payments in order for you to earn fees um, and actually run you know a profitable routing note. Okay, that makes sense. So
1: now that that's Loop, that was the first product um, what did you guys learn what lessons did Lightning Labs learn? I know this may have been before you arrived at Lightning Labs but were there any lessons there that you then took to pool and now are, are taking to Taro and other products in the future?
0: Yeah, I mean, so as I mentioned, you know, I've only been at Laning Labs for a year now. I can't speak to you know necessarily the explicit lessons, but I know the team and I know like what we always think about and learn from our products is, how do we build a feedback loop with users so that we can improve based on their needs? We're always constantly asking users, you know, what do you need? Um, how can we make this better? What can we do for you? And so every product that we build at Lightning Lab stems from that mission, which is to bring Bitcoin to billions of users. In order to do that, um, we need builders to be building products and services that are reaching end users, providing useful services to them. And so we talk to these builders about building on Lightning, trying to solve their problems. And that's what happened with Loop. You you, You talk to builders about how Loop is meeting their needs, about what other features they may want. And you, um, you know, try to iterate and build uh, against that, against those needs and sort of prioritize based on what the user needs are. I hope you're
1: enjoying the show so far. I just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Voltage. Voltage is the industry standard for Lightning Network infrastructure. Creating layer two applications and services on top of Bitcoin starts with Voltage, where you can spin up nodes, get access to liquidity, optimize your node and much more. Voltage is leading the way as the next-generation provider of Lightning network infrastructure, and if you want to get a free trial and start using Voltage today, you can do so at voltage.cloud. Let's jump into Pool and exactly how that product works, um, because that's a bit of a different product. It's not, it's not necessarily moving funds on and off Lightning in in that kind of uh, on and off-ramp uh, mechanism you described with Loop. Uh, this is like buying and selling channels and leases on on the lightning network. Can you describe exactly how pool works and who is using pool today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so starting with what pool is, it's a non custodial peer to peer marketplace for uh, lightning node operators to lease and sell channels. Um, and so that means Uh, it makes it easier to accept Lightning payments and also opens up the possibility of earning a yield on Bitcoin um, by selling access to liquidity on Lightning. And so, um, you know, I think in terms of why people use Pool today, it's a two-sided marketplace. So we have to look at both sides of it. I think first and foremost, the important thing is Pool is designed from a technical perspective to have these like extremely important features around being non-custodial, about being uh, peer-to-peer. And so I think users have, assurances about the risks and the benefits of it. Uh, But if we start with why would someone lease a channel through pool? um, If I'm coming to the lightning network as a merchant, the first problem I have is, um, you know, how do I get that inbound liquidity, we just talked about that a little bit with loop. And that's one way to do it. Um, But that's the problem. How do I find inbound liquidity, I need inbound liquidity to accept payments and have my business operate properly. With pool, I can basically pay a fee to a node operator on the network, to get that inbound. Um, But the important part here, in my opinion, is, um, you know, I'm not just interested in any inbound, I'm interested in quality inbound. And so I've talked to countless lightning builders about, you know, the problems they face and different things like that. And they hammer this home, this point home really well. When I talk to them, it's, you know, not good or bad inbound liquidity doesn't solve their problem. Um, They need uh, inbound liquidity that's going to make sure that payments routed to them are actually Reaching them, Um, and so that's the important part of of pool um, and the ranking system associated with it. Is it allows for uh, merchants and people who are you know leasing these channels to have some assurances about the quality of the inbound that they're getting. Um, The other thing um, that I want to call out is you can kind of put up less capital than something like a balance channel, where you have to match the capital associated with you know the, the open to that party. So it's a really easy and low cost way to source inbound liquidity um, so that you can get your business up and running on Lightning as, as quickly and easily as possible with uh, like the proper assurances around you know non-custodial nature and, and different things like that. So that's leasing a channel through pool. In terms of selling a lease through pool, um, let's say I'm a really high-quality uh, routing node operator, right, and I have worked very hard to make sure that my node is always online, that I'm connected to different parts of the network graph um, and I have these sort of unique connections um, that are, are, you know, uh, accomplishing routing for me, I think that, you know, you've worked hard to make that happen. And because of that, your inbound liquidity is valuable, there's some value associated with it. Inbound liquidity is the the scarce asset on the lightning network. And so um, in order for you to open an outbound channel to someone which becomes, you know, their inbound, that's an important thing to bring to the table. It's an important thing to help these routing node operators earn. And so with pool, you can sell your outbound, which is someone else's inbound um, by a rate set by the market to earn sats on that sort of, um, you know, inbound liquidity that you're pointing towards someone else. Um, And allocating capital is a super difficult decision on the lightning network. I have a lot of conversations with people about where should I open a channel to, Um, you know, how do I make that decision? Um, And I think pool Makes that decision a little bit easier, potentially, by providing a return on that capital upfront um, and making it so you know there's a market for for that.
1: Right. Now you mentioned this is like a two sided marketplace. So how how do you think about the network effects at play here? How strong are these network effects? And you know it brings me back to a point that I, I may, want, wanted to make earlier was like if LND is the only implementation. That you can use uh, for accessing the the pool marketplace, is that an issue? That you know, here's this network with with strong network effects forming, um, a two sided marketplace, and it's only accessible through LND. Is that an issue at all?
0: Um. You know, I think it's something where uh, other implementations have other tools associated with them um, around liquidity management. And I think, you know, in the future, um, you know, there's no reason that other implementations couldn't plug into pool um, if it was something of interest to them. And so I think, you know, any two sided marketplace, which a lot of this liquidity management stuff is going to be is going to have some network effects. Um, And I think when you think about you know why it makes sense to have a liquidity marketplace um, that has network effects it's really beneficial for end users if you have you know something where um you're you're submitting offers or submitting bids and you're not getting a match um or you're not able to you know lease or sell that lightning liquidity that's not a very good experience and it makes it difficult for people to onboard into lightning and ultimately again the goal is to make it as easy as possible to build on lightning um, and so you know, the network effects associated with pool ultimately will make a better end user experience for people. Um, You know, the the more offers, the more liquidity, um, the the more likely we have a smooth user experience around getting onboarded into Lightning or earning sats for your work as a routing node operator. And again, I think there are other solutions that exist out there, um, you know, that that can play in this space as well.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. It, It does seem that there's going to be really strong network effects forming and there have been in the last decade across the crypto you know, broader crypto industry where we've seen centralized exchanges that amass a ton of liquidity all of a sudden become like the hubs for everyone to plug into we've seen the same in decentralized exchanges on other chains like you look at something like a uniswap and it's like quickly become this behemoth because it just had that liquidity from day one um, and it kind of built on this this network effect, continued to grow over time. Um, now, and I, I think, think th-
0: you you do see like other solutions sprouting up to solve this the same problem again. I want to emphasize that like Magma is something that Amboss just released. Yes, LN Plus um, is something that exists out there where people can you know do a similar thing with regard to uh, sourcing that inbound opening ba- balance channels, etc. Um, so there there are you know a, a good number of players in the market here.
1: Yeah. Now, do you know off by hand, I what what's the number of like Bitcoin that have have been um, you know the 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 volume in terms of how much liquidity has been leased on pool today? Do you? I, I've seen. A I don't know the
0: number of off the top of my head. I think it's it's somewhere. I'm not sure exactly. I don't
1: know the number off the top of my head. Okay, I've seen a few different dashboards with different numbers, but um, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah, I recognize there are there are definitely a few other players in in the space. Like uh, I've seen the Magma launch uh, recently. Um, how do you think this plays out? Do you think it'll eventually converge on one uh, one product? Because there's also liquidity ads for uh, Core Lightning. So yeah. There's, there's I guess four main products that I've seen um, to date for offering kind of buying and selling liquidity. Uh, do you think it all converges to one over time? Or it's, a it's an
0: interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure. I think there are different sort of trade offs and different considerations with each of these products with regard to how they work, and with regard to like you know different use cases that they're meeting. So for LN Plus, you know you're opening balance channels, um, which is slightly different than you know what you're doing on Pool. Um, liquidity ads have have different trade offs than something like Pool. So. You know, I'm not exactly sure how things play out in terms of whether there's consolidation or you know whether there's one tool at the end of the day. I'm excited to watch it, and you know, ultimately, uh, what we're focused on again is just building things that make it easier for people to build on Lightning. And so, you know, if Pool meets the use case and meets the need of the builders that we work with and the community that we work with, um, who need this use case and they can use Pool. And that's awesome if they use something like Magma or LN Plus for certain use cases or liquidity ads, um, you know, that's great as well. Um, you know, we're focused on that overarching mission of bringing Bitcoin to billions of people. And I think, you know, because Lightning has this open source uh, component to it, it really allows for like a win and help win type culture, um, where if people are using other tools, but that meets their needs, then that's awesome. Like we're, we're excited about that.
1: Right. Now, um, one thing I noticed, I don't think I can do this on pool today is if if you're not one of the kind of like relatively highly ranked nodes, I don't believe I can sell liquidity on pool
0: today. Is that still true? So you actually can, um, even as a non-ranked node, you can sell liquidity on pool today. Um, But let's talk a little bit about, so you can sell the liquidity, but ultimately for bidders we default to uh, only uh, you know, fulfilling bids uh, for tier one nodes, which are like these ranked nodes, right? So you can go in and change the settings as a bidder to um, be able to accept from a tier zero or tier one node, um, which is unranked versus ranked. Um, but we default to matching people to these ranked nodes. And let's talk a little bit about like the why behind that. I think sure. there are questions about that. Um, so we go back to that merchant who's trying to onboard into the Lightning Network, right? And we've talked to these builders. And again, the the point that they make is not I need inbound liquidity. It's I need quality inbound liquidity. I need to ensure that the inbound liquidity that's pointed in my direction is able to route payments to me so that if people are paying me for things, it's not failing and I don't have visibility into that. um, That's a really, really bad user experience. And so... We ultimately want to help people source this really quality inbound from high quality routing nodes so they have some assurances that when they you know purchase this lease, that it's going to be able to you know, deliver their needs and, and route uh, payments towards them. If we didn't have the ranking system, then what would happen is you could have nodes who you know, may not be quality at all, may not have much routing activity that are in this pool. And you have people who are, you know, buying um, or leasing channels from them. They get that channel lease open towards them, and it doesn't actually fulfill their need because it's, you know, not high quality inbound. They can't actually route payments through it, or it fails at a higher rate than you know quality inbound would. And so, pool um, and the reason for like the ranking within pool is it's helping people source quality inbound, um, and we use that that ranking system to filter for high quality inbound.
1: Okay. That makes sense. So a smaller number, maybe, of nodes can, uh, well, if everyone can access it, that's fine. But I guess you're defaulting to having a smaller number of people um, that are able to sell this liquidity because you know they are they're kind of quality um, nodes and they can they can provide the service that the merchant on the other end may expect.
0: Right, and I think that you know it's in our interest. Like it's not necessarily that we want a smaller number of people. We want to ensure that. Um, you know, there are high quality nodes that people are leasing from, right? And so part of what Terminal does in that product that we you know launched in Q4 of last year is it makes it um, easier and, and simpler for people to build out a quality routing node. Um, it gives channel recommendations. It gives health checks. It sort of helps you along your journey as you build out your routing node because ultimately we want as many high quality routing nodes on the network as possible because um, that helps the network be able to, um, you know, meet the needs of all of the different businesses that are built on top of it um, and so you know we expect you know the number of ranked nodes to grow uh, over time as we have more high quality routing nodes on the network
1: how do you think about whether or not we're at a place where we have enough high quality routing nodes like what what's that determining factor is it is it a number is it a certain threshold is it a percentage of all routing nodes how do you determine what a healthy amount of
0: quality routing nodes on a network is? I I think that's a fascinating question, um, and one that, you know, we may not necessarily have an answer to, but um, the way I think about it is, you know, um, a lot about, you know, reliability of payments on the network and and how payments are working on the network. If, you know, you have people who are, you know, plugging into the Lightning Network, who are opening channels and who are able to, you know, send payments on a consistent basis, um, not have, you know, failures and different things like that, then you probably have, um, you know, A number of high quality routing nodes that are meeting the needs of the network Um, as those needs grow as more businesses come on to uh, the lightning network and there's more sort of liquidity needs more payments being routed across the network i think we will need you know growth of of quality nodes we'll need growth of capital um, and all of that different stuff Um, and so i don't think there's like a magic bullet or a silver bullet or whatever the expression is for the right number of routing nodes. I think it's based on um, you know the utility of the network and what businesses and what apps, what products are built on top and the needs that those uh, products and services have and making sure that the network is reliable in terms of, of meeting those needs.
1: So we've seen communities of routing node operators grow organically in the last few years, one notable one being PlebNet. Um, what role do you think Plebnet, maybe you can, you can describe exactly how Plebnet works and what it is for listeners who aren't familiar, but what role do you think Plebnet will play on the network over
0: time? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so Plebnet is this community of folks, I think May, earlier in May was their sort of one year anniversary from when they started, and it's this community of, of node runners um, who are kind of doing it as a hobby but are also building this educational resource and community it's grown from you know i think it was eight to ten people at the start to now there's over six thousand people in their telegram group um and it's remarkable to watch i've had the pleasure of you know kind of being a fly on the wall in a lot of their discussions and um, just working with them as we are building products and different things like that and i love the fact that the community is just coming together and educating so many people on how to build a routing node. And I, I think at one point, you know, eight of the top 10 terminal web um, nodes were, were PubNet nodes, which is just crazy when you think about it. These sort of hobbyists who've come onto the network and have been able to uh, understand it extraordinarily well, teach a lot of people about it, and just continue, you know, growing and building um into this group of really, really strong node operators. Um, so, I, I mean, I love PubNet. I think what they're doing um, has had an immense impact on the Lightning Network overall um, and the ability to have these these quality routing nodes. In terms of the future, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who look at it and may dismiss it and say, oh, you know, as we grow, these hobbyists won't, won't have a place. I, I don't necessarily believe that. I think that the knowledge that these people, um, that the PubNet have built up is immense like when you talk to somebody who you know is running a a node and has learned through plugnet their understanding of liquidity on lightning and their understanding of you know the different elements of running a routing node is second to none um and so I, i think that uh you know this expertise that they've cultivated and and the people who are you know learning all of this stuff have a role to play in the Lightning Network for a long time to come. Whether it's you know running nodes for larger businesses, whether it's continuing to run their own nodes as part of the you know core routing network infrastructure, um, you know I'm I'm really excited to see where they go from here.
1: Yeah, I mean it's a very cool idea. I do I do wonder as well. You know if if the network grows in in capacity, if 10x is in capacity, 100x in capacity, um, does the Need for capital then become a constraint on hobbyists. Like, if I've only got you know half a bitcoin to my name, am I am I able to play a key role as a router on the network um, if the network capacity is hundred thousand bitcoin? It, it may, yeah, I mean, you know, today we're at three thousand. It's like you can you can most most people can participate if they really want to, um, and it's not it, it is very open to hobbyists today. But if we get Visa, if we get Stripe, if we get you know, like major corporations dumping a lot of Bitcoin onto the network and trying to become hubs themselves, does that push some of the hobbyists to the edges of the network?
0: I, it's a fascinating question, and like you know, I, I'm not going to pretend like I have the answers to you know the future or predictions about this stuff. But I think you know there's a couple of ways it could play out. Um, you know, they have defined their position within the network graph already, um, right? And so they have unique connections, unique routing opportunities and all that different stuff. And because of the way the lighting network works, where capital is reused, um, you know, if you um, can reuse that capital at a higher rate, maybe it doesn't necessarily matter if you don't have, um, you know, uh, a large amount of capital on the node, um, depending on, you know, the size of payments and, and different things like that over time and how that evolves. Another thing that could play out is, you know, when these legacy businesses or whoever comes onto the Lightning Network and wants to run a node, I can't imagine a better, you know, group or better person, uh, better talent pool to pull from than the PubNet folks in terms of understanding how to run a node, um, you know, what best practices are, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, even if. Uh, There's this future state where hobbyists maybe get pushed out because, you know, they don't have um, a lot of capital and they can't process the number of payments that, you know, bigger uh, companies could. I think that, you know, they can play a role in educating and being a part of that and being talent that's associated with running those nodes because of the expertise that they've built up. But again, I don't know the way this plays out. I think that, you know, it's totally possible that, um, you know, people can stay around for a long time, even as the Lightning Network grows in capacity.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating question of what, what happens when you have people who, are, who maybe know more about the network but don't quite have all the resources of larger players. Um, and I, I wonder, you know there was a possibility that was raised on a previous episode of, what if it's possible for uh, you know, someone with a lot of money to deploy their capital and kind of back a node operator? who is in plebnet, who does have a really, really good understanding of how the network works and how to route efficiently. Um, Is that a realistic scenario where you could have both come true, where, where a lot of capital does come onto the network on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have a lot of the plebnet folks who really understand the network, still can play a key role because they are the ones who put that capital to work through their own node? Is that a possibility?
0: It, yeah, I mean, you know, I heard, I think it was Renee, right, who mentioned that possibility. Um, it's not something that I've thought about in depth, really, but I think it could, you know, be a, a potential path forward. I, I think that people underestimate um, the level of expertise that has been built up within within PubNet and the understanding that they have of how to run a profitable routing node um, and how to, you know um reduce operational overhead to do so and and all that different stuff so the idea of a world where you have these you know capital allocators who are potentially you know betting on on node operators like they would bet on you know a business or something like that is fascinating interesting to me um and i think that you know that could be a possibility um i'm not sure how they would facilitate these arrangements i'm sure it would be like contractual and, and different things like that um but yeah, I mean, I can see a world where like that, if you know, lightning uh, grows the way that we think it's going to, and there is this possibility of earning, you know, some yield, some return on Bitcoin within a, you know, quality, um, uh, high-output routing node. Yeah. What do you think is? Um,
1: do you think it's realistic for 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 you know people in Plebnet in this kind of community of really knowledgeable routing operators to earn full-time incomes? Uh, as routing node operators, is that is that a realistic outcome? It, you know, maybe not today, but in the future.
0: Great question. I mean, I think it, it depends a little bit on the price of Bitcoin and the price of living, and and you know, inflation and, and all all that different stuff, and amount of capital that you can put on the node and different things like that. Um, you know, I don't know of anyone within Plubnet um, who's you know doing this as a you know full-time gig and supporting themselves with the um, you know income that they're generating. But I do know many people who are you know operating on profitable routing node and who are you know using it as sort of a side hustle to add to their Bitcoin stack. And so I think you know for the foreseeable future, that's where things will be. Um, you know, you'll have people who are doing this profitably. They're adding to their Bitcoin stack. They're contributing to the growth of the Lightning Network by being a really high-quality routing node. But in the future, you know, with Bitcoin price going up um, and you know, different things like that, lightning network growth, um, the increasing acceleration of, of payments, reuse of capital, um, growth of routing fees as you um, sort of price in the quality of, of routing nodes, um, you know, it's not something that I would necessarily rule out. I think it's just probably far off.
1: Yeah. Do you think that on average, routing fees will tend to rise as we start to figure out like who's a quality routing node, who's not? Uh, and and put money behind some of the quality uh, node operators. Is that gonna change the fee dynamic on the network today?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that as, you know, more capital comes onto the network, as there's more uh, usage around Lightning and as reliability becomes more and more important, you're gonna have different models for optimizing for that reliability. And I think that part of fees is, is pricing the you know, quality of your inbound or outbound. And so um, I do think that, you know, uh, fees will potentially rise over time. Um, I don't think they'll get to a point where, you know, they're as much as, you know, credit card networks or anything along those lines. Um, But I think that um, over time, fees will rise as, you know, quality, um, and reliability are things that are really important to people as they're sending payments on the network. Um, and I think if you're a high-quality routing node and you're, you know, routing a lot of traffic, um, then you have that ability to price um, uh, to price your liquidity as such, to, to raise your fees as such. The interesting thing about the Lightning Network from my perspective is it's kind of an open, free market entirely, right? So if you raise your fees, uh, on a channel, uh, pointed in a particular direction up to a point that's too high, and another routing node operator recognizes that they can come in and potentially undercut you on those fees. So I think, yes, fees will likely rise over time. Um, but I think that with this, you know, purely open market dynamic, um, you're going to have people who can undercut those rising fees. And, and that may you know put a cap on how f- high fees actually get.
1: Right. How does the, I want to understand more about the relationship between usage on the Lightning Network, fees, and capacity. In my head, I I think of this as like a one direction, um, you know, it's a feedback loop. And I want to understand if you think this is the correct way to think about it. The way I have in mind is like, as usage goes up, fees are likely to go up, Uh, fees going up may induce more people to add capital to the network, and then public capacity goes up only as it's needed. Is that the correct way to think about it, rather than like public capacity going up first and then leading to more use? Like how do you think about the relationship between those three?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And again, like you know we'll we'll see how these things play out. This is all brand new. But one, when model that um, we think about and and i love is you know something that alden said is you, the utility to speculation ratio within lightning right so you have these other you know crypto projects where they have you know um tlv or total lock value and and there's like a lot of speculation associated with that in terms of locking coins and you know uh, different methods of earning yield etc i think on lightning what we're seeing is you know the utility to speculation ratio is high and that you know you need um, utility in order to actually um, earn the yield that you're you're looking for right so to your point about this cycle, I do think that usage is what drives the allocation of capital on the network. the more usage you have then the more that capital that exists on the network is being used and reused and um, you know routed over and over again and I think that does allow for, Um, you know, income to go up for for a a node operator, which means that they're, you know, earning a larger yield on their stack of Bitcoin that's allocated to Lightning, which then attracts these capital allocators um, who can, you know, allocate more capital, who can bring more capital to the network in order to, you know, earn those yields. Um, And then the cycle kind of repeats theoretically. If you add more capital, then you need more utility um, in order to use that capital efficiently. And so I think that's why you kind of see this, beautiful, slow and steady growth of the lightning network as we have more use cases, as we have more apps, products and services built on top of it, then, you know, the capital comes with that, but not before. Um, and I think that's, you know, something to be happy about and to cheer about is that um, utility to speculation ratio, um, you know, being more focused on the utility side of things.
1: Right. Right. So in a way, you know, because the, the, the capacity of the network is a very public metric, that's one thing that many people can see and, and you know, people kind of anchor to that as thinking that, oh, that is the one north star metric for lightning. And they, they look at that and they say, well, you know, if that number's not going up, then lightning's not going up. And it's probably not, that's, it, that's a gross oversimplification, but it's, it's good to hear that you, know, you think that if that number has gone up, It's because the market has demanded that number to go up and it's because there's not enough capital available for all the usage that is happening. And we're actually asking, please bring more Bitcoin on, you're gonna earn a higher yield. Is that the idea?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, You know, one thing to point out there i would be remiss not to call out is you know that's public channel capacity there is yes. there are private channels on lightning and so we don't have as much visibility into the growth there um and so um you know that's the best metric that we have to see that that capacity and i think um, another thing i would call out is a piece that you wrote i believe about you know, estimating um, the number of payments and the amount of liquidity moving on Lightning would encourage your listeners to read that because um, I think it goes into this idea of you know public network capacity is one super easy thing that people can look at to see um, you know what's the growth of the Lightning network. But you really need to dive in deeper in order to understand what's actually going on with regard to you know amount of payments and different things like that. If you're running a routing node. You can see the volume grow. You can see, you know, your income grow. Um, and I think that's why reports like, you know, what Arcane put out um, with the help of OpenNode that show, you know, 410% increase in payments year over year is fascinating because from a network capacity perspective, we might not be seeing that much growth. Or from a channel's perspective, we might not be seeing that much growth. But from, a, you know, payments perspective um, an amount of, you know, volume through the network, we, we can see that. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Uh, You know, it's really interesting to to think about lightning network growth and the different components that go into it I think we're still at the early stages of figuring out You know what exactly are the metrics that make sense and all that different stuff
1: Is there a metric or are there sets of metrics that you guys like to use at lightning labs to figure out? How how lightning adoption is going like what are your guys preferred north star metrics?
0: Um, Great question. I think we we think about a few different things. Um, you know, we obviously um, have people who are running routing nodes, and so we you know, look at um, growth of payments there occasionally. I think we look at um, you know the number of quality routing nodes on the network, BOS score, you know, enabled nodes on the network, and and the growth there. Um, and, you know, we also look at, you know, volume on pool and loop as a proxy for potentially, you know, increasing volume on, on the lightning network. So there are, are a few different metrics that we look at to kind of put a finger in the air and, and see what's happening with the lightning network. I'll, those are in addition to what we look at from a public network perspective, um, which everyone has access to with regard to capacity and, you know, number of channels and, and all that different stuff.
1: Right. Okay. I want to get into uh, tarot now. I want to understand more about this project and exactly how it works because you guys put out a blog post about it. I believe it was announced right before the Bitcoin conference. Um, For those who aren't familiar, can we start with just a high-level definition of what Tarot is and, and maybe its relationship to Taproot?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Taro is an open protocol that's sort of made possible by Taproot. Taproot is a recent upgrade to to Bitcoin that sort of enables greater contracting capabilities along with sort of privacy and efficiency benefits, right? And so Taro is a Taproot-powered protocol for issuing assets on uh, the Bitcoin blockchain that can then be transferred over uh, the Lightning Network for the benefits of sort of instant, uh, high-volume, low-fee transactions. And so Taro enables... Bitcoin to serve as this sort of protocol of value. Um, It allows app developers to integrate um, assets alongside Bitcoin in apps, both on-chain and over Lightning. And this expands the reach of the Lightning Network um, as a whole. It brings more users uh, to the network who then drive more volume and liquidity in Bitcoin um, and allow people to, um, you know, have more routing fees if you're sort of a routing node on the network. Um, and so more network volume means uh, more routing fees, and, and they get that sort of benefit of a multi-asset network um, without needing to actually support any assets. And we can talk about sort of the, the design of Taro and why we're super excited about um, you know, the way that it's designed from a Lightning Network perspective.
1: Yeah, OK. The first I want to get into the the topic of assets, because I think the word asset, is, is a very broad term that it, it means a lot of different things to different people. You know, asset, a new asset on Bitcoin could be a stable coin, it could be a fiat currency, it could be an NFT, right? It could be a totally, it could be a totally different crypto asset. Is there any particular kinds of assets you guys are, you guys had in mind here? Is it, is it, is it trying to be as flexible as possible to enable any asset?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the use cases that, um, that we're most excited about, and again, this is a protocol, um, so, you know, there will be the ability to build different things, but I think the use cases that at least I'm most excited about is, um, you know, we hear so much from builders and people like Alex Gladstein, who work in emerging markets, that people there want exposure to stable coins or dollars, right? And whatever the reason may be, you know, that maybe they have expenses in, um, you know, fiat, Maybe they are scared about you know the stability or volatility of Bitcoin price. Um, personally, I may save in Bitcoin, but you know if we hear about those demand that demand from those builders in those emerging markets over and over again, it's something that we want you know to to build a solution to. We want to you know solve that problem, and I think that if we give um, these individuals, these users, these builders the ability to um, provide that, you know, stablecoin or fiat exposure in a Bitcoin and Lightning native way, ultimately that allows for people to transition into becoming, you know, uh, more Bitcoiners, wanting more Bitcoin as they watch, you know, um, the the different things play out as they see like, okay, I have the stablecoin balance, maybe I had this Bitcoin balance within a wallet, and I can kind of um, see how the two interact. And maybe I start to save more in Bitcoin and spend more in fiat. And so I think, you know, the use case that I'm personally most excited about is meeting the needs of those emerging market users who are clamoring for this need for stable coins and the need for, for dollars. Um, and then you know what follows from that, I think, is um, easier adoption, easier education of, of people into uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem in the Bitcoin world. So in a way, this is
1: kind of a gateway towards Bitcoin. You view this as like, if you can open up access to stable coins, that's a step closer for people to then move into adopting Bitcoin. Is
0: that the idea? Exactly. The the, the on-ramps, you know, are so much easier if you think about, okay, how do people buy it now um, in emerging markets? And, you know, some people don't have bank accounts, some people just have cash. And so that on-ramp into like getting the actual, you know, asset to be able to purchase um, Bitcoin can be difficult. And so if we have that on-ramp or we have that um, you know, stablecoin that lives directly within the same experience of um, you know being able to purchase Bitcoin or, or whatever it may be, then I think that that on-ramp and that sort of uh, move for people into Bitcoin is way easier. Got it. How is
1: Lightning Labs planning to monetize Terra or or is it at all? Is it is Lightning Labs going to be an asset issuer? Is there going to be a spread? What are some of the things you guys are thinking about in terms of how do you then how do you use how do you earn from from this creating this protocol
0: yeah i mean it's an interesting question first i will just say like you know we have no plans to, to issue assets we're building a, a protocol um for the possibility of of issuing assets and you know there will be partners who potentially you know issue those assets uh, lightning labs won't be issuing our own you know stable point or anything along those lines but in terms of monetization, I think it's you know it's really early. Ultimately, I think uh, again, what I love about Lightning Labs is there's this focus on the mission, right? And then the mission is bringing Bitcoin to billions of people. And I think um, as part of that, um, you know, we've heard these countless stories from Lightning builders about users wanting um, this exposure to stablecoin within within a Lightning wallet, right? And so, what we're focused on right now is building Taro from a protocol perspective, getting the code out there, um, launching it. Um, you know we we went through the spec process specifically so the community could provide feedback um, and give us you know some more direction about where to go. And so we're focused on um, you know delivering that that protocol. I think you know ultimately, our belief is that with taro assets um, on Lightning, we'll see uh, you know pretty, Uh, large growth of of routing activity. We'll see, you know, additional routing activity on the network. And so that means, you know, more routing fees for routing node operators, but it also probably means more usage of stuff like loop and pool to, you know, make sure that liquidity is in the right place at the right time. Um, And so, you know, as we think about, quote unquote, the monetization of Taro, you know, there's the possibility there that that increased routing traffic um you know drives more revenue to loop and pool and then there's you know some some integrations with loop and pool that we could pursue in the future but right now we're super focused on um, just delivering the, the taro code and the protocol itself.
1: Right. And so if if in a in a world where taro is implemented and let's say let's say just for listeners for simplicity's sake, there's one new asset and that new asset is gonna be uh, lightning US dollars stablecoin, right? Yeah. In that circumstance, um, how does having that additional asset on the Lightning Network affect routing node operators? What changes will they see as a result of this added asset?
0: I'm really glad you asked about this. Uh, I think one of my favorite parts of the design of Taro is um, all of the sort of Taro asset stuff happens at the edges of the network. So the core, Um, of the network, which obviously runs on on Bitcoin liquidity, can basically remain entirely the same while the edges of the network deal with the Taro assets. So in this way, the existing Bitcoin liquidity on the network um, can be leveraged to route Taro assets. There isn't the need to spin up an entirely new and separate network and have to bootstrap that. And so Elizabeth coined this phrase or or meme um, that Taro plus Lightning will enable for us to basically Bitcoinize the dollar, which I think is brilliant. It's, we bring the dollar onto these Bitcoin and lightning rails, right? And that allows for, you know, again, the edges handle the Taro assets. The core of the routing network doesn't necessarily have to. And this means that Taro can have a faster time to market and, and be useful um, earlier. Um, and it means that those routing networks at the core are likely to see you know, a lot of increased volume because of the interest in um, having you know, Lightning USD and the interest in moving that around. But they don't necessarily have to do anything different. They don't have to support uh, Taro assets or anything like that. The routing bump just comes to them um, as a part of the you know, core Lightning network. So if you're on
1: one end of the network and I'm on the other and you're trying to send me $10 of Lightning USD, what How does that work? Then is the Lightning USD on your side routed through the network as Bitcoin and then just flipped at the the final stage to
0: Lightning USD? Is that the idea? Exactly. So it's the you know first hop and the last hop that actually have to uh, deal with the sort of conversion to a, a Lightning USD. Um, but the the hops in the middle don't actually have to know about the existence of it. They're just routing Bitcoin um, like they would for any other payment.
1: Now, could that work in reverse if if demand for Lightning USD is so great and everyone starts using it for that purpose, could the opposite happen where uh, people begin sending Bitcoin through the network and it's being routed through Lightning USD uh, nodes? Is that is that a possibility?
0: Um, haven't really thought about it that much, but I think that, you know, with the Existing like network effects and liquidity effects that we have around Bitcoin in the network today. I mean, there's I think it's 3,900 Bitcoin, and and you know there's this whole network graph built on top of uh, Bitcoin routing and all that different stuff. I think that those network effects. Uh, will mean that Bitcoin is kind of always the core of the network, um, and that these assets kind of live at the edges, um, and you can route through the Bitcoin core of the network um, and have you know these assets um, reach people on the edges, but the core is is running uh, through Bitcoin and fees are paid in Bitcoin and, and all that different good stuff. Got it.
1: So even if you know even if we're routing uh, Lightning USD to each other. Uh, or you're sending Lightning USD to me maybe, the people earning on the way, the routing nodes, are all earning in
0: Bitcoin. Yep, absolutely. And so that's what kind of, part of what we mean when when Elizabeth talks about Bitcoinizing the dollar, right? You take this dollar, you put it on Bitcoin lightning rails, um, you have it be a much more efficient system using Lightning Network, um, but the people who are routing it are actually earning uh, Bitcoin. Um, And that's the super exciting part, part about it for me from like a design perspective is again, these routing node operators don't have to change anything. They don't have to do anything. We expect there will be, you know, a lot of demand for uh, routing these assets, and so they'll get, you know, a bump in routing revenue. Uh, but they don't necessarily have to do anything to make that happen.
1: Now, how does the asset issuance work? How how do you think about is is there any uh, regulatory consideration here? What might be the interface that that customers use to acquire Lightning USD? or some other asset, how does that component work? Cause that to me is still a little fuzzy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that as we, you know, release the Taro code and all the different, you know, protocol elements there, it will come more into focus, but basically, you know, it's an open protocol for issuing assets. So um, any issuer um, can issue assets through uh, this Taro code that we'll put out um, and we'll be able to, you know, create an asset on the Bitcoin blockchain and then theoretically, you know, raise that to the Lightning Network. I think there are considerations around, um, you know, inbound and outbound liquidity of these assets and, you know, how that will be sourced and and different components there. Um, uh, Just because, you know, as you think about the Lightning Network, you think about that liquidity management, um, you know, you'll have to have considerations there. Um, So, you know, from an issuer perspective, this is an open protocol, so um, you know anybody will be able to look at it, use it, um, issue assets, and you know the users, and routing node operators, and developers, and the ecosystem that comes up around Taro will ultimately decide you know what assets are playing a large role in the ecosystem and all that different stuff.
1: Yeah, it's it's such a broad topic that I, I struggle to sometimes think about what assets could be added because I, I recognize there's the award asset means so much like. Do you think that there's a future where there's, you know, a foreign exchange market uh, deployed on Taro, or is there a stock exchange on Taro? Like, what what are the limitations of the protocol? Um, and I guess outside of the the conversation around stablecoins, which I think at this point people people recognize as a as a very real um, demand for you know for the crypto industry, people want stablecoins. What are some of the other demands that you think people are going to have when this protocol is implemented
0: yeah i mean i think it's a really fascinating question and something that we're excited to see unfold i think you know part of the reason again why like i love working at lightning labs and and you know being a part of this platform business is we get to um create these protocols um and and have these things that make building on lightning better for builders, developers, entrepreneurs, and then we get to see where they take it. You know, um, we don't have to necessarily have a strong opinion about the the direction that it should go or will go. Um, And so, you know, I would put that as a challenge to uh, builders who are considering lightning, you know, uh, I think when when Taro comes out, um, when the protocol comes out, um, you know, you'll have the ability to you know, take a look at it and see what is possible. I think you know, stuff like NFTs, um, you know, any arbitrary asset theoretically can be issued through Taro. and it's just going to be sort of the builders and users who guide us in terms of um, what the use cases that make sense end up being. Um, similar to the way you know, Lightning spun up, we we couldn't have possibly imagined necessarily that you know, podcasting two point or um, something like Stacker News would exist, but it's basically um, you know, a, a bet on the creativity of um, these entrepreneurs, of these people who are passionate about Lightning, passionate about Bitcoin and building on those things. So I'm confident we'll see, you know, a wide variety of potential use cases. But in terms of predicting exactly what those will be, I'll leave that up to the creativity of, of the people that we work with and of the entrepreneurs who are, are reaching these new users.
1: Fair enough. Um, will we see uh, the same kind of like, uh, you know, privacy-first design on Taro as, as there is on the Lightning Network? Do you think that that's realistic to expect?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think because um, Taro is, um, you know, Taproot native, um, built on Taproot, there are certain privacy components that come with that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the design being Taproot native helps um, ensure some of those privacy components.
1: Okay, got it. Um, I want to finish things off with a couple of, lightning predictions. Um, First one I want to ask is, what do you think public capacity is going to be in the year 2025?
0: Oh, man, you're killing me. That's a uh, my like, you know, um, case study brain is working trying to like work backwards, but I'll I'll just put, you know, a number out there. Um, Let's say 2025, so that's three years from now. Let's say uh, 30,000 Bitcoin. I think wow. a 10x within three years is a total possibility, and I might be being, you know, a little bit conservative. Maybe it's in that 30 to, to 50,000 range. Um, I think that the use cases that we see pop up with all these different apps and products that are building on Lightning are going to um, drive the utility of the network. So high that capital is going to have to be allocated more and more as we sort of reach that um, more and more utility of the network.
1: Yeah. I've asked that question to a few different uh, guests, and you're by far the most bullish. So I like uh, okay. that well, prediction. Check <laughs> The fact out. that you I'm, said uh, it's conservative, too. You know, 30,000, <laughs> you're like, that's a little bit conservative. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I like if you that. look at the growth over the past, you know, uh, four years or so, I think, um, you yeah, know, a 10x. Uh, is is something that's totally within the realm of possibility.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. So, how many how many nodes are on the network in twenty
0: twenty five? Oof. Good question. Um, so, there's different measurements for you know nodes. I think. Um, uh, right now, depending on what you're looking at, we have anywhere from 20,000 to I think like 60 to 80,000, but I'm, I'm gonna use like active nodes with the channel open. So right. we're around, I think like 25,000 or something in that range. Um, let's go for a nice, even 100,000 nodes in on the network. Um, you know, if we three X number of capital, um, you know, maybe we, we you know, go up even more in terms of the number of nodes uh, on the network. Um, 10X so, capital there. Oh, yeah, sorry. 10x the number of capital. So, you know, maybe if we yeah, I think like a nice even 100,000 because, you know, I I imagine that um, you'll have more nodes that have more capital um, than potentially, you know, this stage of growth where we've had a lot of hobbyists and different folks like that. You see it with someone like Kraken coming on board to the network, right, where they, you know, dumped a lot of Bitcoin into their node right off the bat. So I think as we have, you know, larger businesses, um, seeking yields and return on their Bitcoin in a non-custodial manner. Maybe you see um, you know, the growth of capital grow at a higher rate than uh, the number of nodes on the network.
1: Right. How many, um, how many exchanges have not integrated Lightning by the year 2025?
0: Have not integrated Lightning? Yeah. I feel um, like it's
1: becoming, it's not contrarian to say that exchanges are going to be integrating Lightning anymore. Like now we've seen a few in, in recent like weeks and months uh, have either integrated or signaled that they're going to integrate it. Um, how long does it take to get all the main, let's say, I don't know, the main top 10 or top 20 exchanges in the world, um, how long does it take to get them all on, onto Lightning?
0: This is a good question. I uh, I don't want to get our, our director of BD Ryan, in too much trouble here, but I will say that um, by the year 2025, um, you know, a vast majority of exchanges will have lightning. I think that once you see these exchanges that are adding lightning and sort of the benefits that it provides from a potential arbitrage perspective for, for traders, right, um, and being able to move money between exchanges instantly and therefore like top off margin positions or, um, you, know, um, you know, arbitrage price differences and different things like that. As you have more exchange come on board, I think it's gonna be an advantage for them and you'll have other exchanges who kind of FOMO in because they don't wanna be the last person to integrate Lightning um, because that would put them at a a disadvantage with regard to the benefits of it.
1: Right, now what is, final question, what is the uh, dollar value of assets listed on Taro in the year 2025?
0: The dollar value.
1: I, the I, I would suggest like what's the Bitcoin value, but that also introduces then the question of what, what's the Bitcoin price in twenty twenty five. Yeah. That, you know, so I guess we gotta gotta stick with the dollar value and maybe in twenty twenty two purchasing power in case we get a bit of extra
0: inflation in the next few years. Oh man, I. So let's see. You know, I said a ten x in terms of capital on uh, the Lightning Network, so that would put us in the range of you know. I guess a few billion dollars, depending on price and different things like that, we'll assume Bitcoin price goes up. Um, So I I think it's more than that. Um, You know, my hope is that um, I I think it will be in the range of, you know, uh, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars um, of Taro assets on Lightning. Um, I think Lightning Network will obviously, you know, be be more than that theoretically. But um, yeah, my hope is that um, you know, we get into a range where you know it's it's hundreds of millions or billions of dollars um, that are uh, Taro assets, and again, that enables sort of these routing node operators to um, see way more activity and and earn these these routing fees on that movement of that capital without again having to do anything. So it's exciting to think about the possibilities there.
1: So what is that split then between Taro assets of you know if you say let's say around bit one billion. Um, If you're saying hundreds of millions to a few billion, uh, let's use one billion. Today, if we had 30,000 Bitcoin at today's prices, we'd have almost a billion. Um, But you suggested Bitcoin price may go higher. Um, Like, what what does that split look like in 2025? Is it, are we going to have always more Bitcoin on the Lightning Network than we will have Taro assets on the Taro protocol? Or is is there a potential for, uh, like... How do those two relate to each other?
0: I mean, I think that you know because Bitcoin is at the core of the network in terms of routing, you're always going to need a certain uh, you know number of Bitcoin to fulfill the the needs with regard to routing assets on the edges of the network kind of like you will always need a certain number of Bitcoin to fulfill the needs of you know the apps and services on the edges of the network with regard to you know their routing activity. Um, so my hypothesis would be that Um, You know, we do see, you know, more Bitcoin on the network than potentially Taro assets. But, you know, I'm not 100% sure about this. I think that, like, um, I'm fascinated by the ecosystem that develops around Taro and and what exactly happens there. Um, And so it's possible that there are, you know, way more Taro assets and it's using the Bitcoin liquidity um, and, you know, it's kind of reusing that capital in such a way that there doesn't need to be, you know, more Bitcoin than there are Taro assets. Got it. Awesome.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was really, I enjoyed going into all these different topics. Uh, I learned a lot. I'm sure listeners did too. Uh, Where can listeners go if they want to learn more about you, the work you're doing, and if they want to contribute, if they want to help out and and build the Lightning ecosystem, where can they go?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So if you want to learn more about me, you can find me uh, at Michael Levine uh, on Twitter. Um, And then in terms of Uh, you know, the Lightning Network, you can go to lightning.engineering. And then if you want to connect your node to Terminal and sort of play around with the different functionality there, would encourage you to go to terminal.lightning.engineering and connect your node. In terms of contributing, um, you know, we have the LND repo on GitHub. It's something where we try to put up issues for, um, you know, beginners. And so if you see anything that you want to do there, Definitely um, take a look. And then we also have started a bi weekly LD PR review club, um, which basically goes through PRs um, and we review the comments and, and the different components there to try to help people understand how they could um, you know make a contribution to LD and how they could help with reviews and different things like that. So that's bi weekly on Thursday. Um, and you can find out more details uh, through our Twitter account at Lightning.
1: Awesome. Excited to follow along with the progress and hope we can do this again soon.
0: All right, sounds good. Thank you so much, Kevin. Appreciate the time.
1: Welcome to the lightning round presented by Zebedee, your portal into the world of Bitcoin gaming. The Zebedee app, that is Z-E-B-E-D-E-E, is a full-featured lightning wallet and allows you to earn Bitcoin for playing games. Now, I thought it'd be fun to spice things up a bit. So if you go download the Zebedee app, you'll get a chance to compete against me and earn some extra sats. Each month, I'll be playing a different Zebedee game. And you can find them all in the Zebedee app. Uh, But this month, I'm gonna play SeruTobi. Now, my high score on SeruTobi is currently 625 meters on flyby mode. So if you go download the Zebedee app and beat my high score, send me a screenshot of it on Twitter, as well as your Zebedee Gamer tag, and I'll send you some extra sats. Good luck. Here we go, in the last seven days, you guys sent in 5,613 sats. That came in from eight different supporters. Let's run through the top five real quick. Uh, We have an anonymous user from Castomatic who sent in 3,308 sats. We have Follow Reason sent in 1,475. Mallard Quackenbush sent in 343. MCOT sent in 147. And an anonymous user sent in 98 sats. Uh, We also got uh, about 3,000 sats sent in from Boomi, uh, for uh, the, the entire show. It was sent to the, the Kevin Rook show uh, rather than a particular episode. Um, so thank you to everyone sending in sats. Um, we don't have any new comments in the last couple of days since the last episode came out. Uh, so I thought of an interesting idea. I want to hear your, your takes on this. And uh, if you like it, I'd love to implement it in this show. So every time I, I bring a new guest on, I'd love to be able to have the audience Ask questions and I've been trying to figure out a way to do this in a way that makes sense now that there are lightning addresses enabled on Fountain I can have an audience member send in a comment send in a question for a guest before the show and I can have either the guest or myself pick one of those questions and then add that listener add that contributor to the show splits for providing that question Um, And so I'd love to get your take on this. If you guys think this is a good idea or not, send in a comment, uh, send in a question if, if you need to hear some clarifications on it. But I think this would be a really cool idea where I can get you guys, the listeners, involved in the show and you can actually earn for providing great questions. Let me know what you think and can't wait to hear your thoughts on today's episode. We'll have another one up shortly. See you soon.